two decades. The award-winning Your Financial Editor program on 930 WFMD. News from the worlds of business and finance with your financial editor, Chris Murray. Welcome to another edition of the Your Financial Editor program right here on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And if you don't have the WFMD app, Make sure you go to the App Store and download that. Uh, I am Chris Murray, your host. Thanks so much for being with us today. Hope things are going well for you. Your weekend's uh, off to a good start. have a good program planned for you today. Some interesting uh, stories and economic data that transpired this past week. We'll drill a little deeper um, as to what the meaning is and how it will uh, impact or potentially impact the uh, financial markets, the global economy, economics for all of us down to uh, just our base, baseline daily living. Uh, also joining me in just a little bit, my guest, Mr. Darren Winston, who is the head of department books and manuscripts at uh, Freeman's Auction. Amazing how much a copy, a signer's copy of the Declaration of Independence uh, sold for recently. Uh, so we'll have that. And also just how that business, uh, that high-end art manuscript uh, type business is uh, faring and how they uh, they got through uh, the virus downturn. So all that coming up in just a little bit. A couple of large deals this week were announced. Zoom video communications, which really became a household name during the virus uh, lockdown, whose video conferencing service um, is very, very popular. Well, they're planning to purchase a cloud-based software company called Five9. It's an all-stock deal valued at $14.7 billion. So the deal will accelerate Zoom's long-term growth opportunity by tapping into the $24 billion contact center market. Uh, that's what the company's uh, press release, release said that I was looking at. Um, as a result, the company projects that it's going to be able to transform how businesses connect with their customers. So now that the U.S. economy is really uh, basically reemerging, getting back on its feet uh, after the virus and the need uh, for virtual meetings lessening, the company's looking to boost their appeal with clients in different ways. So the CEO of Zoom said that they're continuously looking for ways to enhance their platform. And by adding 5.9, which provides software to customer service centers uh, to thousands of clients around the world, the CEO was saying it's just a natural fit. So uh, obviously a very big um, deal at $14.7 billion and one that will be watched closely to see how uh, that all works out, especially um, with the other players in that space. Also, we saw this week that Uber is making a big push to beef up their trucking business by purchasing logistics service company called TransPlace for about $2.25 billion, intending really to turn its Uber freight unit into a top player in arranging and tracking shipments of good, uh, good, excuse me. So, um, you know, they're looking to pay cash and about $750 million of Uber stock from private equity firm TPG Capital. And, in, you know, if you assume the deal clears regulatory approval, it looks like um, it'll be one of the biggest tech platforms for shippers to manage the uh, the flow of goods. So trucking and logistics, that 
whole industry remains in a boom period because they've got this endless growth uh, in demand for retailers and, you know, from customers out there, and they want the ever faster delivery of goods. So freight hauling by trucks is a massive business generating gross revenues of over $791 billion in 2019. The latest information I saw from the American Trucking Association's estimate. And uh, that has fueled uh, a push by these technology companies, both makers of software and services, to book and manage shipments, as well as the developers of autonomous trucks into the freight business. Um, And by the way, speaking of the autonomous trucks, Uber, um, they shed that truck program about three years ago. But uh, they have continued to build up Uber Freight, which books freight deliveries. And it'll be interesting to see how well they perform uh, in that area. Again, just a very, very um, booming area right now. And you can just tell going up and down the road with all of the trucks you see. Um, and then, of course, you've got the rail cars. You've got the uh, the freight, uh, the sea containers uh, via, you know, the uh, the ships that are coming back and forth. So just a lot of uh, a lot of trade, a lot of products um, that are really making their way not only across the United States, but uh, across the world. Um, also, what I saw this week, and obviously it was no surprise, the U.S. officially climbed out of the virus-induced recession just two months after the economy cratered, making it the shortest downturn, but also one of the deepest on record. So the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is the semi-official documenter of business cycles, said at the beginning of the week that the downturn lasted from February 2020 to April 2020. Um, The recession erased more than a decade of job gains in a single month. Some 22,000 people lost their jobs. It was more than double what the U.S. lost during the 2008 financial crisis. And uh, with gross domestic product just plummeting during that period, 31.4% in the second quarter on an annualized basis. So the NBER also said that May 2020 marked the start of the current expansion, meaning economic activity had stopped declining and activity actually started rising again. So, uh, like I said, that was no surprise to see that uh, it was such a violent recession, you know, such a violent couple months in particular, and uh, just a huge amount of pain uh, and suffering that, uh, that the United States experienced. Uh, before really kind of getting our our heads wrapped around what was truly going on, what we needed to do, uh, Operation Warp Speed, and other things that worked out really well, and a a ton of them that didn't with, you know, the forced shutdown of the economy. That was self-induced and overboard, and the whole shelter-in-place thing and, you know, people unfortunately – Uh, deteriorating with their mental health and the drug overdoses and just a lot, a lot of bad things happen because of um, the virus. Uh, And it's it's um, infuriating that China still acts like it's not a big deal and there's nothing to see here. And no, we don't want an investigation, which it wouldn't really matter. I'm sure they destroyed all of the evidence um, as soon as they knew what was going on at the Wuhan lab. So, um, 
like I said, just very frustrating that uh, it hasn't even really come up with this administration uh, in trying to get answers. And, of course, the WHO is saying they want to investigate, which the horses bolted out of the barn long ago. That would be a waste of time and wouldn't really give us uh, the information and the truth that, that we uh, so deserve. Something else um, that I've been talking about, and um, it's it's frustrating as well, the United States and Germany are expected to announce uh, a deal resolving their long-lasting dispute over Russia's $11 billion Nord Stream 2 pipeline. So uh, Biden and German Chancellor Angela Merkel uh, failed to settle their differences over the undersea pipeline when they met uh, a week or so ago. The pipeline, which is 98% complete, will increase Europe's dependence on Russian gas. I, I don't think that's very intelligent. And it could rob Ukraine of the transit fees it now collects on gas pumped through an existing pipeline. So what people are saying are, and in, in particular the CEO of the company, is that an agreement would avert the uh, resumption of currently waived U.S. sanctions. So in other words, we had sanctions in place to prevent this because we didn't want Western Europe to become um, dependent on Russia for energy. And then Biden comes in and undoes that. Uh, I don't really know why. But the deal would include commitments by this is get this. I mean, this is important that you hear this um, include commitments by both sides, by us and Germany to ensure increased investment in Ukraine's energy sector to offset any negative fallout from the new pipeline. So not only are we going to watch Russia get a tight hold on Western Europe, we're going to take American tax money and spend it in Ukraine on their energy products or excuse me projects while we're shutting down our energy pro- projects here in the United States. You can't make this stuff up. It's just stupid. Makes no sense whatsoever, but that's what's going on. The other side of that is former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo really slammed the administration for the agreement with Germany which, uh, again, is going to allow this completion of the, the Nord Stream 2 uh, natural gas pipeline that's under the Baltic Sea, uh, arguing that it would really undermine American national security. So Secretary Pompeo uh, said that he believes that climate change has now become the uh, talisman for, you know, Biden and that he will sacrifice every bit of our national security for just a little bit of carbon reduction. And in a series of orders aimed at combating climate change during his first days in office, uh, as we know, Biden suspended the issuance of oil and gas permits, and he canceled the Keystone XL oil pipeline project. Um, And that was just ridiculous, too. There was zero percent wisdom in uh in doing that so with the new deal russia is going to be able to double the volume of natural gas it exports to germany beneath the baltic sea and uh secretary pompeo basically said that it's absolutely tragic so he's a tough stance guy he sees things as they are whether it's china whether it's russia whether it's iran or any of our uh enemies or nemesis um, he comes right out and calls it just like it is and, and makes very, very good recommendations on how to uh, temper 
their overreach um, with what they're trying to do, whereas now we have just the opposite uh, of that. So it's uh, truly a shame. And then this, when I heard this actually roll off the the lips of, um, of Biden on Monday, he was saying on Monday that Congress needs to pass his economic agenda in order to tamp down rising inflation. Okay, you've got inflation because of the excess of money that's sloshing around right now, not just here but around the world, and you want to spend more. That is just the opposite of how you curtail inflation. So when he was speaking, he's like, yeah, we've seen some price increases. And some folks have raised worries that could be a sign of persistent inflation. But that's not their view, he said. But yet, clarify, what is your view? Gas prices are higher. Food prices are higher. Services and products in general, prices are going up. So what view do you have? Are you viewing, like, are you just looking down at your shoelaces? It makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, the government reported, the government, last week, that prices for goods and services jumped by the most in 13 years. And out of that mouth, that's not their view, that there's inflation? And that it's not being persistent? Transitory, if you look up the word, It's just a fancy word for temporary. Well, we're months into this, and it's getting worse. So now what do we have to do? Redefine temporary? Just because it's not your view? And that real hardworking people, folks that don't have a lot, folks that are on fixed income, they're taking it the the toughest. If you're a multimillionaire like Biden and his buddies, they don't care about inflation, especially right now because we're paying for everything for those people that are government workers like him. But what about those, again, fixed income, people that don't have much money, that are struggling, single moms, single dads? It's real. And again, it's it's at a 13-year high. Year over year, 5.4% in uh, consumer price index from June to June. 5.4%. That's a serious price increase. That's more than double what the Federal Reserve says they want to see. They were trying to get to 2%. Well, when you print enough money and you get foolish with your monetary policy, you're going to get inflation. That's exactly what we're seeing. Uh, conservatives have really latched on to the inflation issue, which they should, blaming the $1.9 trillion bill that the Democrats passed uh, without any GOP votes, by the way, in March. So you're seeing this inflation after that $1.9 trillion, and you want to spend another $4 trillion? Like I said, you can't make this stuff up. Just the numbers, you know, the facts show how ridiculous the policies are coming out of uh, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Now, I did see something this week, according to a July 20 research briefing that was published by Oxford Economics. uh, Labor markets in the South and the Midwest are leading the rest of the country 
in their recoveries from the virus. Um, with eight of the 10 most robust recoveries seen in the South and Midwest. So when I was looking and doing some research on that, I noticed that Iowa, Alabama, Arkansas, South Dakota, Idaho, Utah, Montana, all but one, Kansas, was run by a Republican governor and a fiscal conservative Republican governor. And that's why, you know, get people back to work. Get us back on our feet. Get the recovery going as soon as possible, not when someone on TV or some politician tells you it's okay to get things going again. So congratulations to all of those elected and appointed uh, officials that are doing the best job they can for all the citizens of their state and really just for helping the country out because the stronger each state is, the better off um, all of us are, I believe. Uh, And that's why it's so horrifying to look at California and New York and other states that are and cities that are so poorly run. Um, The other thing that's coming up that, you know, you might want to be aware of, uh, we heard from the Congressional Budget Office this week, wasn't talked about, but it should have been, the U.S. is at risk of a default in October or November unless Congress raises or suspends the debt limit. So without an increase, the Treasury Department's ability to borrow would be exhausted and would probably run out of cash sometime in the first quarter of the fiscal year, which starts October 1. So, you know, the debt limit or the total debt the Treasury can issue to the public and other government agencies has been on a two-year hold that expires, um, I think it's next Saturday. It's July 31st. I think that's when the month's over. So uh, the CBO's forecast is a little later than what Janet Yellen's been saying. She wants, obviously, to jack up more spending, and she's saying you have to do it like yesterday, but that doesn't surprise me or anybody that follows what she does. And, um, you know, she's just definitely in the tank like she for Biden, just like she was for Obama when uh, she was the chair of the Federal Reserve. Um, And we know it. Again, it's facts. So once she left the Federal Reserve, she went out private, made millions of dollars in speeches, started talking about income inequality and social justice and all the other garbage uh, buzzwords that are going on right now that are actually hurting the uh, country and not helping. Um, And then, of course, she gets appointed as Treasury Secretary. So it's obvious when you see her make these uh, requests and these statements that they're politically driven uh, based on her uh, her views. Um, and that's not good for the country, for sure. Uh, quick break. Will your money last as long as you do? Why a retirement income analysis matters for your future? That's our latest uh, complimentary takeaway. Go to murrayfinancialgroup.com and uh, you just click on get my copy and it goes right to your email. It's only an eight-page read. But it has a lot of good, basic, common sense information for you to help you think about things and uh, focus properly on your retirement. Such an important decision um, when you retire to make sure, number one, you can stay retired. And then uh, number two, that uh, you're going to have a comfortable lifestyle uh, that, you know, that you deserve after working 
for so long and so hard. So go to murrayfinancialgroup.com. Will your money last as long as you do? Why are retirement income analysis matters most uh, for your future? And again, that's a complimentary download. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And as a podcast, you can always go um, and uh, to iTunes and just look up your financial editor and you can get uh, this program and past programs. Really been lucky with a lot of very, very interesting, uh, informative, accurate guests in 2021. The trend continues this year. So um, feel free to re-listen or to share uh any of those podcasts to someone you think uh, would benefit from it. Um, not a ton of economic data, but enough uh, for sure that we want to touch on a couple things from this past week. Uh, home builder confidence slipped in July, but it's because of supply shortages. Uh, it's really tough when you look at supply chains right now. But the uh, data that I was reviewing released on Monday by the National Association of Home Builders showed confidence fell one point to a reading of 80. It's the lowest level we've seen since last August. And again, builders are contending with shortages of building materials, buildable lots, skilled labor, as well as a very challenging regulatory environment. And that was um, expressed by the National Association of Home Builders chief economist, Robert Dietz. And he said that that's putting pressure on home prices and sidelining many prospective buyers, even as demand remains strong in a low inventory environment. So th- this is crazy what we're seeing this year. Again, back to the inflation part, the cost of a strand board, it's a common material used in home building, soared more than 500% this year because of a supply shortage. So you've got rising lumber prices that have added $36,000 to the price of building a new home on average. And what that does, you know, $36,000, that can definitely price people out of the market just because of lumber. Um, Haven't heard anything from the administration on what they're doing about these kind of things. I don't know if you have, but I haven't. I mean, a, a real businessman, someone that understands the economy and the business world, would be focusing on improving these distribution chains. We learned during the virus, you don't want to rely on all these foreign countries. We were in the process of bringing manufacturing and other uh, businesses back to the United States, and now we're going the other direction. Uh, U.S. housing starts increased in June by more than forecast, so they were up 6.3%. That's good. More inventory, right? It was um, a shame to see that... uh, building permits, the applications to build, uh, actually fell uh, to the lowest level we've seen since um, October. So uh, that was a mixed report. When you looked at the existing home sales from June, just a great report. I mean, if you're a seller, June existing home sales were up 1.4% in June from where they were in May. Uh, This was according to the National Association of Realtors. Sales were up 22.9% from June of 2020 and the median existing home price 
in the month of June was up 23.4% from June 2020. <laughs> A lot of happy sellers out there. Just the average price was $363,300. Um, but, you know, you again, you see uh, the economy opening back up and, you know, better late than never. The demographic factors continue to stoke buyer demand. People want to get out of these poorly run and violent uh, cities, even though they don't say that. But um, that's what, you know, a, a lot of them, that's one of their main drivers. So interesting. What was not good to see on Thursday, the number of Americans filing new claims for unemployment benefits rose to a two-month high last week. So it's a reminder that the labor market is far from being out of the woods. New claims were up 51,000 to 419,000 for the week that ended July 17th. That's the highest level we've seen since the middle of May. And also the data for the prior week was revised to show 8,000 more applications than what they originally told us. <laughs> no surprise there either. Um, so, you know, a lot of work to be done. Gosh, and there's so much damage being done right now. It's really, really a shame. Um, the latest complimentary takeaway, will your money last as long as you do? An extremely important question and one you want to make sure you have not only a answer, but the correct answer to uh, why a retirement income analysis matters for your future. You can go to murrayfinancialgroup.com and right on the homepage, uh, you just click that for that report and it goes right to your email and i hope you enjoy it that's why we do it when we come back we'll be talking uh with darren winston the head of department books and manuscripts at freeman's auction going to talk about in particular that really got my attention when they asked to come on the program uh the signer's copy of the declaration of independence sold for a historic amount at uh freeman's auction just a little while ago. So we'll be talking with uh, Mr. Winston about that. Stay tuned. Financial Editor with Chris Murray on 930 WFMD. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com and as a podcast on iTunes. Thanks so much for being with us this weekend. Hope things are going well for you. Uh, interesting uh, close to the program. The uh, next two segments, I'm glad to have joining me my guest this morning, Mr. Darren Winston. He serves as the head of books, maps, and manuscripts department um, and uh, at Freeman's Auction. And uh, he's a representative for the New York, Connecticut, and Western Massachusetts areas. And he lives in Connecticut with his wife and uh, son and daughter. And some really interesting uh, things have been happening in the auction world. In particular, uh, when I heard from um, Freeman's Auction about a uh, Charles Carroll's copy of the Declaration of Independence 
and and what it sold for at the beginning of this month. So we're going to be uh, talking about that and just uh, that profession in general. Good morning, Mr. Winston. Good morning, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule to join us. I appreciate it. So um, I guess we'll start for our listeners who might not be familiar uh, with Freeman's. Give us some uh, some history about the company. So uh, uh, Freeman's are the oldest auction house in America. We started business in 1805 and have been continuously in business since then in Philadelphia. And uh, we recently moved uh, just before COVID. I like to tell people we moved two miles in 216 years on the same street. That's that's really a good story. Yeah. So, wow, 1805, that's uh, some serious um, – that's amazing. You just don't hear that story much anymore, you know, in the country as far as uh, having a a business stay in business, like you said, without any interruptions for that period of time. So congratulations to everyone who who continues to make that happen. Um, How has the auction business changed? I guess I actually should say, you know, um, how long have you been in it and how have you seen the industry change over the years? So I'll, I'll answer the questions backwards. Um, the biggest change really was when COVID hit, um, we as a company, as individuals, of course, were terribly concerned and worried. And um, one of our concerns, the one I'll talk about is, what is this going to do to the auction business? Um, why would anybody in their right mind be thinking about buying something when we don't know what's going on and we can't leave our homes? And um, what we found is that fairly quickly when we resumed auctions, and I believe our first sale was in May of 2020 after the lockdown, is our numbers were strong. And we had another sale, and they continued to get stronger and stronger. And we talked to our colleagues at other houses, both in the States and abroad, and everybody said the same thing, that auction numbers were strong and getting stronger. And we've made adjustments with the online world. You know, I, I still sometimes am amazed that someone will spend 10000 100000 a million, $10 million on an item that they've never actually seen in front of them. But that's just the way we do business in the online age. So for um, the entire year, really, from May until this past May, um, all of our sales have been strictly online, no one in the sales room, and we've set a few records, and um, we just go, we, Freemans, but also I think the, the industry in general just goes from strength to strength, so that just shows how different a world it is now in 2021. Yeah, absolutely, and how long have you been in the uh, profession? So I've been in the profession for 27 years, and I've been on the auction side of it for the last almost four years. On the, before that, I was on the retail side, but I've been in books and manuscripts for 27 years. So you've made an interesting uh, point a moment ago when you said that it's so surprising, even to this day to you, uh, being in the business, that someone will pay thousands or millions of dollars uh, for something that they've never seen. Do they have a trusted um, advisors or just, you know, trusted companies or consultants that might, uh, review what's going on that as far as what they're considering, uh, purchasing in person for them since they can't or don't want to do it. They do. And in fact, as a, one of the components of buying at auction is, um, and this goes for virtually every auction house and every item that auction house is selling, is if you are interested in something that's being offered, you ask for what we call a condition report. And that's essentially a very detailed list of 
um, everything about that item. So let's say you're looking at a painting, and in the initial description, it gives the size, it gives the subject, and it says, you know, a little wear to the frame. You ask for the condition report, and there'll be photos of close-ups of what is worn. It'll explain perhaps how the wear happened, when it happened, whether it could be conserved. So it's giving someone every detail that they would be able to see if they were standing in front of it. In addition, so that's something that always happens. We do have um, clients who have representatives who will either ask the questions or they will come and make the inspections. Um, depending on the item, the level, you know, the sort of value level, even at the highest level in the you know, tens of millions, you still will have the buyer um, being the person who asks all those questions. And then there's people at that level who you will never talk to and you'll only be dealing with a, sort of a proxy or a representative. And we work with who was put in front of us and as a you know, auctions by by their definition happen in public, so um, everything is there for everyone to see. You know, there's nothing nothing to hide behind, and there's nothing that that really can be hidden because the the, the records are um, public knowledge. You're um, conducting it in person. In fact, with the advent of COVID, um, we were already showing our sales live online, but for the last now 18 months. If you go to a Freeman's auction, really what you're doing is you're looking at it on screen. You're seeing the auctioneer in our sales room conducting the auction, but you don't realize that he's he's talking to a room full of phones and computers and not the normal group of people holding their paddles up and, you know, bidding in, in live in person. And I guess uh, the, um, the reputation as regards to honesty is extremely important in uh, in what you do because – so much money is at stake, and I guess if people felt like uh, they were being duped or uh, a, a, an auction company wasn't being totally transparent, it could be very detrimental. That's absolutely right. In fact, one of the – simply by virtue of being around for 216 years, we – that number um, will tell a prospective um, consigner or, or um, buyer – that, okay, we've been doing something right for that long and hopefully nothing wrong. But at the same time, I think I would like people to think that auction by definition is um, because of the sort of public sphere that um, you can trust. Now, I can't make a blanket um, comparison to every auction house in the world, but even as an individual, if I were buying at auction, I would feel that there was a level of trust that I wouldn't get necessarily with a private uh, excuse me, a private seller, not because the private seller is dishonest, but the private seller um, does not have to disclose, you know, all the information that an auction house would disclose. Um, and also when you're dealing with an auction house, you can dispute something and you can say, and this is why. And um, thankfully that doesn't happen often, but the, the there are mechanisms set up so that that sort of thing can happen just as smoothly as a, as a positive purchase. Whereas if you're dealing with someone privately, they can simply not answer your call, which would, which is terrible, but I'm sure that happens. Yeah, exactly. And again, uh, congratulations to uh, Freeman's Auction for uh, all of the longevity that they've uh, experienced. And obviously, they, you guys must be doing something extremely right and doing it well also. We're going to squeeze a quick break in. When we come back, we'll continue my conversation with my guest this morning, Mr. Darren Winston. Um, he's uh, He serves as the head of books, maps, and manuscripts uh, department 
and is Freeman's representative for New York, Connecticut, and Western Massachusetts areas. And uh, when we come back, we're going to be talking about what caught my eye, the press release that was sent to me by Freeman's, um, the signer Charles Carroll's copy of the Declaration of Independence, uh, which achieved a historic sales price. And the story behind that that was referred to as um, fairy tale like discovery uh, of this item. So I think you're going to find it uh, very, very interesting. And um, make sure you stay tuned for that. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com and as a podcast at iTunes. Um, And we're going to wrap up our conversation with uh, my guests this morning. Very glad to have Mr. Darren Winston. He serves as head of books, maps, and manuscripts department, and he's a uh, representative for Freeman's Auction and he covers uh, New York, Connecticut, Western Massachusetts areas. He lives in Connecticut with his wife, uh, son, and daughter. And they travel frequently to his wife's native England and Scotland. So uh, very interesting. Uh, he's been in the uh, auction profession for quite some time. And when I received the uh, press release uh, asking for some exposure, I was glad to do it. Uh, when I got that from Freeman's because it was it's very timely. You know, we just celebrated another um, birthday of this fantastic country and uh, this document that uh, they sold for a record price was a copy of the Declaration of Independence. So, uh, Mr. Winston, kind of tell us the background of how this uh, particular copy surfaced, if you will. Absolutely. So um, Freeman's works with an auction house in Edinburgh, Scotland, called Lion and Turnbull. They happen to be Scotland's oldest auction house, and we refer to them as our sister auction house. We've been working together for for years and years. And my colleague at Lion and Turnbull, who's called Kathy Marsden, she went on a what we call a house call. She went to visit um, a client's home to look at some things that they were thinking of selling. Um, and also, whenever we make calls like this, we go with the attitude, we'll, we'll look at anything you want to show us, and we might point some things out to you that you hadn't even thought of showing, excuse me, of selling. So um, Kathy went out there, and she was looking at various things, and she was in there, I believe she was in the attic, and found a stack of papers that looked intriguing, brought them downstairs, started to go through them, um, came upon this one item that was folded up, and she unfolded it, and it turned out to be a copy of the Declaration of Independence. Even as a Brit, she understood what that was. So she folded it back up, and she said to the owners, I think this might be something important. Uh, We'll take it back to the office with the other things and see what we find out. She started to do her research. She got in touch with me and said, this is what I found. Um, This is what I'm learning. We started to do our research here in Philadelphia. And essentially what we discovered was, and I'll give you the 
briefest version of events of the, the history of this document. Um, by 1820, the original handwritten Declaration of Independence was in terrible condition. And Secretary of State John Quincy Adams decided that he was going to have a copy made. Um, he was going to hire a printer, and he would have 200 copies made, and he would hand them out to various dignitaries, including the three surviving signers, who at that time were John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and Charles Carroll of Maryland. And um, it took uh, William Stone, the printer, three years to make an exact copy. And I always remind people that when you're making um, – when you're preparing plates for engraving, you're doing all the work backwards because just like in a photograph, in order to make something that looks normal to you, it has to be done the other way around. So when they print it, it comes out the right way. So he copied the declaration backwards, every stroke of every pen mark in it. Um, they were dispersed by 1823, and the three surviving signers all received two copies. Um, John Adams' two copies ultimately ended up at the Massachusetts Historical Society, given by his son, John Quincy. Um, Thomas Jefferson's two copies were, they seem to have been lost. Um, uh, the family and the Monticello website have said that, along with other documents of his, they've been lost to time. Um, Charles Carroll gave one of his copies to his grandson-in-law, on August 2nd, 1826, and he made a note in the inscription that 50 years ago to the day he had signed the original document. Um, now, by August 2nd of 1826, that was three weeks after John Adams and Thomas Jefferson died within hours of each other on the 50th anniversary of the signing of the original document. So that alone is an amazing fact, and every time I say it, I'm <laughs> re-amazed by it. Right. Um, but Carol... Three weeks later, or four weeks later, knew that that had happened, and he, he was truly the last man standing. At the time, he was almost 90 years old, so he inscribes his copy, gives it to his grandson-in-law, and uh, Carol dies in 1832. Twelve years later, the grandson-in-law gives that to the, the Maryland Historical Society, which had just started, with along with some other of his papers. But the second copy... Um, John McTavish, the grandson-in-law, copied the inscription that Carroll wrote in the same spot and then made a little note on the side that he had given the original, the one with the, the handwriting on it, to the Historical Society. So that was Carroll's second copy. And then it disappears for 177 years and shows up in an attic in Scotland. And although we spent countless hours trying to draw a line from those two places and spoke to the family at length, um, no one knows how it got there, why it was there, just that it was there in beautiful condition. It was ne it's never been framed. It was never um, sort of manhandled. It looked when you opened it up, it looked like it had been printed the day before. So Lion and Turnbull sent it to us and said, "Look, this is great. We'd love to sell it, but really, for everyone's sake, it should be sold in America. And it specifically, it can be sold in America by Freemans in Philadelphia, the city where the original document was." written and largely signed. So we put an estimate on it of five to $800,000, and that number was based on what previous copies of uh, the same printing had brought over the last, I think it was 10 or 12 years, and each one successively was estimated a little bit higher and sold for a little bit more. Um, we knew it was special. We thought it would probably sell for a million dollars. Um, and then as the sale day approached and the interest started to gain steam and we started getting serious people calling up, we had people make offers to buy it outright and ask us to you know, cancel the sale. We'll give you this much money. And we said, no, thank you. Um, we think it's going to be fine. 
And then the night before the sale, I think I said to my wife, I said, I think it might make $2 million, just things I had sort of heard and a feeling in my stomach. And then in the sales room on July 1st, and we decided to have the sale before July 4th, both from a patriotic point of view and, and to be honest, from a business point of view, because we were hired at the end of the family to sell their items. We really had to do everything in our power to um, reach the highest amount, which is why we planned it that way. So six of us are in the sales room on the telephone with six different bidders. The bidding started, I believe, at $450,000 and worked its way up in, um, I think it was 25, probably went 475, 500, then it jumped to 50,000 increments till it got to a million, and then it went $100,000 increments. And one by one, the bidders sort of fell off. We made it through 2 million, and there was still, I believe, three bidders. We made it to 3 million, still with three bidders. And by the time we got to three and a half million, my bidder on my phone had it. Some one of the other, uh, one of my colleagues was on the phone with another one. They bid 3.6 million. My bidder said, "I'm out." So now there was two bidders. The third guy in the room on the phone said, "My guy will do 3.7 million," and the guy who had it at 3.6, not folded, but sort of said like. He, you know, he essentially did not want to bid 3.8, which is what he would have had to have done to sort of get get it back on his side. So it hammered our expression for what what you know when the gavel comes down. It hammered for 3.7 million, and ultimately sold for I think it was 4.42 when you include the buyer's premium, and that was the record that you talked about in the beginning of the show, the second highest amount ever paid for any copy of the Declaration of Independence. Um, only one before had sold for more. And um, the most a, a William Stone printing ever sold for, the most any 19th century document ever sold for. So a lot of firsts that day. It was a very exciting day. Oh, man, what a great story from the discovery and the research and, you know, like you said, bringing it over to actually auction it in Philadelphia. It's just one really interesting uh, tidbit after another. Uh, and thank you so much for, for telling that story and congratulations on uh, the sale of that document. And uh, if anyone's interested, you can go to freemansauction.com and you can see uh, their upcoming events, uh, buy, sell, departments, their services, about the company, uh, et cetera. So, uh, Mr. Winston, thank you so much for taking time uh, out of your schedule and for telling such a great, uplifting story today. It was great talking to you, Chris. Thanks so much. Okay, excellent. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. And again, folks, you can go to freemansauctions.com uh, and, uh, and check that out. And look that story up again about the uh, Declaration of Independence, Charles Carroll's copy that was sold for $4.42 million. Um, just a, a great story overall. And uh, that does it for us. Uh, we're going to wrap the program up. I'll talk with you on the Morning News Express with uh, Bob Miller and Ryan Hedrick right here uh, on WFMD. Those are live, 5.56.50, weekday mornings. We're back here next week. Uh, and we're going to have another really interesting uh, interview for you So um, and good information from the previous week. Uh, so I hope you're able to join us. Enjoy the rest of the weekend. Uh, you can also go to murrayfinancialgroup.com. Will your money last as long as you do? Uh, very important question. It's a complimentary takeaway. It's an eight-page read, and uh, it's there for your benefit. Uh, I hope you, uh, you enjoy it. And... Um, like I said, enjoy the rest of the weekend. This is Chris Murray wishing you and your family financial success.
Past editions of this program are available in the audio vault at WFMD.com. News Radio 930. WFMD Frederick. A connoisseur media radio station. 7 o'clock.